Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask you in your mercy to show us who you are. Teach us what you've done and show us how we might live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David, just to remind you, has um, just committed adultery and killed a man. And uh, we're going to find out he's moved on for the last year. Just doing what kings do. And then this is where we pick it up. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich men had, a ve- had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink food from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare a guest to, for a guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity." Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel in Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and, she became, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night long in the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor would he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while he While the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes And went into the house of the Lord and worshipped him. Then he went to his own house. And when 
he asked, they said, food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for a child while he was alive, but when God, when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went and lay with her. And she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah and the Ammonites and took the royal city and Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters and then gather the rest of the people together and encamp around the city, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king and his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was precious stones and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and said, that set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Israel, or to Jerusalem, excuse me. So what if God's displeased with you? That's where the last passage ended. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. It's a question we should ask about whether or not forgiven sin can still displease God. It's actually pretty easy. The answer is yes. God stands ready with his hesed, as we've said, called it before, the Hebrew word for loving kindness. His loving kindness endures forever. He stands ready to forgive every one and all of your sins. He marks them all. He sprinkles them with blood. He forgives and then he forgets. But that same, that same has said, not only forgives, but relentlessly pursues you to make you like his son Jesus. Don't be mistaken. God loves you to the very end. But those things which you have done, which displease Him, which dishonor Him, which destroy your families and your communities, distract your heart or diminish it, all those things displease Him. And that same loving kindness that forgives you that same faithfulness doesn't rest until you know the full measure of his glory. That's the other side of Hesed. The first side of Hesed is it will be okay. The second side of Hesed is God has work to do in the soul of those he forgives. 
And unless you're ready to embrace both of those sides, you'll never understand the Christian faith. First lesson I want us to learn today is that Hesed comes after us. Not only does it forgive us, but it comes after us. Remember what I just said, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and for a year God was displeased in his patience. We'll see why we think it was a year in a moment. Of course, there was a child born, but there's, um, there's more to it than that. But that year, that, that's in between. God's patience means and, and doesn't mean some things. It, it doesn't mean that God cast David away. It does mean that he's displeased with him, but he um, sustains him and provides for him. He had promised that he would be a father to him. So when I stand here and say that the things that I have done that displease God, he remembers and and seeks to pursue me, I don't mean that he forsakes me during that time, but it also doesn't mean that I sense that. Some of the hardest work God has done in my own heart as I wrapped my own aspirations and flesh around ministry, um, I was completely oblivious to for almost 20 years. Yet God, in his timing and his patience, made a note, did not forget, and found a way in his benevolent genius to introduce me to myself. He waits patiently. What does it mean? Well, what it means is that God loves David. It means that our sin and your anger or greed or transgression or, trans, uh, or, um, or idolatry of some kind, your pettiness, whatever it is that is in you, Um, God loves you too much to let that sit there and simply keep forgiving it over and over again. It also means that that our sins burden God. That that as we're told in another part of the Bible, in the, the Greek part of the Bible we call the New Testament, our sins grieve the Holy Spirit. How is it that a divine, blessed being with with perfect understanding of how everything will work out for the good, is still burdened by my sin. The only answer can be that God is so attached to us and so committed to his own glory and our good that our transgressions in some fashion somehow burden him. That's not uh, theologically very comfortable for uh, a lot of uh, theologians. Uh, God is uh, transcendent, unimpacted by the um, ebbs and flows of the world. He has a perfect contemplative shalom at all times. Well, that's all true, but I do think this is more than anthropomorphism. It's, more, it's somehow God is connected and burdened. Out of love. Just like when my children err, I'm burdened by that for them and for me and for God. 
In 2009, the Canadian Prime Minister announced that Canadian social services would no longer provide aid to individuals with outstanding warrants for felonies. He took a stand. He also said that he had instructed caseworkers not to ask applicants if they had a warrant for a felony. So I don't know where he was going with that, but God has found a better way to deal with our felonies. He forgives them, and then the other side of his hesed relentlessly pursues them. So how does he do it? comes from God's heart, his heart for us, this other side of the hesed, and then it comes to us through his prophets. This is one of the most elegant parts of the narrative. Um, God sends Nathan. Now, if you remember from last week, and if you weren't here last week, as I've asked before, what were you doing? But you can now go online and, and hear it. Um, the idea of messengers and being sent is central to this whole passage. David sent a messenger to fetch Bathsheba, last chapter. She sent word back to David that she was pregnant. David sent for Uriah. And a messenger came back. David sent Uriah back with his only own death message. And Joab sent. This is all the same word used throughout. And then God sent that messenger back with David. Messages are crisscrossing throughout this story. And, and it's all related to our pathetic attempt, or David's, which is a picture of ours, our pathetic attempt to cover, explain, maneuver, and outwit the providence of God and his law. And in the midst of this, God does what he's done to all of us. In the midst of all of our storytelling and deceptions and half-truths and self-serving narratives, God sends a truth-teller. He sends a prophet. In this case, the prophet is Nathan. But he sent other prophets to all of us, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Moses, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Peter, John, Luke, Paul, to enter into us, enter into our deception, he sends his prophets, he sends his word to break through our foolishness. When WikiLeaks downloaded CIA's Vault 7 and that whole scandal started with all those terabytes of secret information, the FBI was unleashed on the CIA to find the origin of the leak. And they would go into CIA headquarters and they would interview uh, both operatives and also tech people and everybody else. And one of the first questions they would sometimes be asked is, how do I know that you're really with the FBI? It's an unexpected question, but as soon as you read that they asked it, you're like, well, of course they would ask it. They're in the CIA. 
We spend a lot of time trying to evade the word of God, but he sends it right to us. But it's interesting the way the um, other side of Hesed comes from the heart of God, through the prophet of God, and then to the heart of sinners. Because uh, there's a lot of things that Nathan could have said to David. He could have quoted Deuteronomy 17. It's the fifth book in the Bible where kings are not supposed to take many wives or get in foreign alliances. Um, They're supposed to read and copy down and adhere to the law of God. That would have been where I went. I would have just proof texted him and then thrown it down and stared and waited. So now, now now you're like, well, maybe I'm glad Mike isn't our pastor. Um, he could have gone to the Ten Commandments about adultery and murder. But, but what he does is um, a Scripture and time-honored maneuver to break into our hearts. Because if you have a sin that's 10 or 5 or 5 months old or 10 years or 30 years, um, your heart has built a fortress around it. And um, like David got into Jerusalem through the water tower... Nathan gets in through um, this parable, which is kind of hyperbolic and, uh, you know, almost um, it is so artful that we're a little surprised that David didn't get it. There's a guy who's really rich and he has a bunch of lambs. First of all, a good question would be why, why isn't this being brought to one of the, uh, one of the lesser officials in the kingdom? The other one is this guy's got this lamb that's like his third child or something, you know, and he's holding it. And, um, but David is drawn into it. And he explodes in anger by it. See, w- what David is not aware of, but what the Spirit of God is doing, is the Spirit of God is exposing David's guilt by projecting David's sense of shame and guilt Onto another. And so David loses it and, and goes way overboard. You steal someone's lamb, you're not supposed to die. Actually, you know, David says here, I have to repay it fourfold. Well, I guess from his estate, because you just said the guy was going to die. The, the fourfold is from the law of Moses. The kill the guy that stole the lamb is not from the law of Moses. That's from the heart of David, who knows in his heart that the penalty for murder is execution. His heart has been exposed by this prophetic ninja bomb. And David is about to find out that forgiven sin still displeases God and there's another side to Hesed. This last week, I I was in Birmingham, Alabama for our denomination's national meeting called General Assembly. And, um, you know, it was very very General Assembly-ish, you know, all the meetings and everything. One of the unique things was that the United States Football League, the USFL, that was, they had teams there. 
And so they took over all the good parts of the, of the hotel, which was kind of... But one of the things that struck us all was like, you could definitely tell which dudes were on the USFL, and you could definitely tell which dudes were at, pre, at General Assembly. Like, it was very easy to tell two groups. Like, there was not, not a lot of confusion. And I was struck with how huge these guys were and just how jacked they were. It's like, these guys aren't even in the NFL. I mean, they want to be. Some of them probably will be. But this is like maybe a developmental league. It's like one tier down. And I'm like, dude, this is incredible. So I get in, a, I get in an elevator, and a, guy, and a player walks in, and he's about 6'5", and probably like 4% body fat, you know? And uh, uh, we're going up. I'm going to 17. Turns out he was going to 15. And I said, hey, man, how you doing? Good. I'm doing fine. I guess you're a player. Yeah, who do you play for? Can't remember. I said, what position do you, do you play? He goes, I play cornerback. So, so we went about three floors, and I, I, was, I couldn't resist it because I just looked at him. I said, I could definitely juke you. So he looked at me and goes, really? I go, oh, yeah. And then I just started laughing and he started laughing. And I was like, you know, I played football 11 years from the time I was eight, you know, and I touched the ball twice in a game. So really, that, I am not juking you or anybody else. He just got off the, S, the elevator and went on his way thinking, what a loser. But um, <clears throat> it, it occurred to me as I'm preparing for, for this message, that there I am with all my evasions, with all my stories, with all the stories I send and, uh, and the excuses I give and the workarounds I develop, I'm just looking at my Savior and saying, I could, I could juke you on this. I mean, I'm forgiven, so Yeah. I know my way around this. I went to seminary to learn how to juke Jesus and get out of dealing with my sin. But, but there's a side of God's hesed that is relentless and will never stop. And so Nathan, after David explodes, Nathan does this beautiful pastoral argument from the lesser to the greater it's like, oh, you think that's bad? He's thinking to himself, probably this is working out perfectly. And then he says, it's you. You are the man. Hesed calls us out. The other side of Hesed that it not only forgives us, but it calls us out. You are the man. And then he goes into the whole litany of God's blessings. So what I want us to know is that when God calls you out with the other side of his said, he's going to go historical on you. He's going to break all the counseling rules. And he says to David, I anointed you, I delivered you of the hand of Saul, I gave you his kingdom, I gave you his house, I gave you all these things, I did all this for you. 
that, that God sees his kindness, his rain and his sun and his bread and your friends and your job and your health and your church community and your freedoms. He sees all those things as testimonies of his kindness to you, which he expects to be reciprocated by your obedience to him. Don't misunderstand me. The whole message of the gospel is that he knows we will fail and he's forgiven us when we do, but he still expects us in the, in the calculus of our relationship to respond to his hesed with hesed to him. Micah says, oh my people, Micah 6, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. We have a long list of God's uh, delayed answers, God's wrong answers, God's confusing providence, God's mean providence. We can list those off, but do we remember all those 10,000 meals we've eaten? How many times we've laughed? The comforts? Uh, There's a lot of reasons that I try not to argue with Sandy, and one of them is she remembers Everything I ever said and what I was wearing when I said it. <laughs> She's like, no, 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 that was uh, you. Because I remember you were wearing the red sweater your mom gave you on the eighth Christmas we had together. And I'm like, I'm sorry. You know, that's all you can say. I'm sorry. You're right. I'm sorry. So God, every time you receive a goodness from God, God's showing you kindness that he expects you to lead you to a more fluid obedience. Now, he knows you won't, and he knows I won't always. But when he exposes David and Hesed calls him out, the other side of Hesed, well, he remembers those things. So, so, here, here's perhaps a discipleship tip for you. Remember those things too. Write those things down. Make it a practice of giving thanks every day for the smallest, most mundane, simplest things, none of which does a sinner deserve. I've given that instruction before. I tell people to be thankful for things like shoelaces. When was the last time you gave thanks to God, the maker of heaven and earth, for shoelaces? Well, in Christ, all things hold together, including your shoes. But there's many, many more larger, grander things that are just common for us. So Hesed does the history thing. Then, then this Hesed will name it. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite and taken his wife. He, he goes right there in specificity. What, what I would long for for the people that I minister to is that, is that the, the crucifixion and the atonement for our sins would be so real and um, so assuring and so palpable to us that, that we would be ready to 
be told truth about our own sin, no matter how graphic or disturbing or uncomfortable it feels. That's the gift of grace. You've been made safe to be a sinner. So use that safety to let the people that love you, surely the Holy Spirit, get very real, very specific, and name it. You despised, that is, you had contempt. You utterly scorned Yahweh. That's what sin does. Large sins, small sins, ugly sins, pretty sins. They just have scorn for God. And he forgives that. But there's another side of Hesed. He's going to teach you that if he loves you. He's going to name it. And then he's going to introduce you to reality. What is that reality? Well, the reality of the Lord's discipline. The reality that that we live in a moral universe. That we have a moral father who loves us. As C.S. Lewis said... God um, is certainly something more than morality, but he surely cannot be something less. You know, put another way, stupid is supposed to hurt. Sinfulness, transgression will always pay a price. That's what we're going to miss. I'm, I'm checking out, you know, the next chapters of David's life Read how this works out in David's life. It's tragic and heartbreaking because God puts us in a world that follows his moral code more or less over time. And forgiven sin still stings. So let's talk a little bit about how we live with the other side of Hesed. And the first thing I want you to do is to um, surrender to it. When you see it coming, when conviction reaches to your heart, when shame wants you to run away from it, fear wants you to hide and deny it, then you just surrender to it. When the discipline of God comes upon your work or your family or whatever, you just receive it. David surrendered to it. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. But man, David, the next five or ten years are going to be tough. And David just receives it. I have sinned against you, he says in Psalm 51, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. My bones were crushed, he says in Psalm 32. David let this happen to him. David owned it, surrendered to it, and felt it. He had spent a year denying it and medicating himself with who knows what, and now it's over. Now he just receives it. There there will be seasons in your life following Christ which are Uh, distressingly uncomfortable. But none of those mean that God has taken his love from you. In fact, it's proof that he loves you because God the Father disciplines his children. 
The next thing that I hope you can do is after you receive it or surrender to it is to believe it. When the harsh discipline came upon their first child, David fasted and pled. You can see, remember in the story, he won't eat. And um, they ask him why later. And he he says, well, maybe. That's such a beautiful expression of how David's surrender to this discipline did not um, mean in his own heart that he no longer thought was God was good. I mean, he's still praying about the goodness of God. So you must believe it. Then he gets up. He gets up, washes himself, anoints himself, and goes to worship. So what should you do? Write a note to yourself. When God comes and sends his prophet to me, when he comes to me um, and, and breaks me, even for forgiven sin, well, what should I do? Well, I should believe it. And I should go back to church and make my offering and stand in the midst of God's people. You know, Jerusalem was not Manhattan. People knew what was up. And David went right back to it. One more thing. And then I have a parting word of exhortation from your now former interim. Then you start over. After you've surrendered to it and believed it, then you get up and start over. How does this passage end? What's David do at the end? He goes out to war. How did this whole series of stupid start? This is in the springtime. This is why we know this is about a year later. In the springtime, when the kings go out to war, David stayed back. Here, David, after surrendering to God's relentless, the other side of his hesed, after believing in it, he starts over. And he re-engages his duties as a king. That's the whole course of your redemption. That's the whole course of the Christian life. You're going to run through that cycle over and over and over again till you enter into glory. It, Lord willing, won't be this dramatic. But it will be the same over and over again. God relentlessly pursuing you, sending his prophets to you, speaking to your heart. Going all historical. Naming your sin. It's going to do all those things. Teaching you that the world is moral. You can surrender. You can believe. And then you get up and start over. As we teach our granddaughters when they fall. And our grandson now. What do you do when you fall? Does anybody know the answer? You get up. So, here's my exhortation. You all um, have a pastor now. You... Justin is here, and um, he will, as he's here, I trust, for decades. Most of the people in this room will hear him one day say, You are the man, you are the woman, you are the one. So you're going to make a vow to this brother 
and to the Lord that you will receive that from him. I pray that you will remember that when he comes to you to say those things, when you have denied for a year or a decade, and your shame and guilt and fear lurch forward, you'll remember that God in his relentless has said, has sent a pastor to call you back to the grace of God. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you to establish your word here and establish the ministry of this uh, brother and his wife, Liz, and their family that um, in those moments which will come, you will do a work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.